1: Learn more at Marines.com.
0: Hey guys, it's Allie and Lindsay here, and we want to talk to you about our new favorite wine subscription. It is Weinster. The best thing about Weinster is that they work with small wineries. You know BSN loves supporting small local businesses, and Weinster is just that, supporting real people making real wine. These guys will curate a hand-picked shipment for you from the best small wine producers in the U.S., so my favorite part about WineStir is the fact that I don't really know much about wine and when I go to a liquor store, I tend to gravitate towards the same wine I've always had instead of trying something new but with Weinster, they make the process so easy. That's exactly right, Allie. And from my perspective, you guys, I love wine and have tried so many different types of wine at different price points, and Weinster is not only easy, but it is quite literally some of the best wine I've ever tasted, and it makes for an amazing gift. What's also ideal about Weinster is that you can pick your shipments based on your schedule. That's right, Allie. So whether you're a casual drinker or you love hosting parties, you can get your shipment based on your lifestyle. So head to their website today, you guys. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R, Weinster.com. We've got BSN25 promo code for you, and you can save $25 off your first
1: order. Running the option on first down. Hagen has it. He has it. Kimberly, right.
2: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the BSN Buffs podcast presented by Total Beverage. My name is Henry Chisholm, and before we start talking Buffs, I want to tell you about this really awesome deal for BSN listeners. If you didn't know by now, Total Beverage is delivering beer, wine, and liquor to anywhere in the North Metro area from Wheat Ridge to Erie. For a limited time, Total Bev is offering 20% off your purchase on their website and their app. Use code BSN20 to save 20% and have it delivered to your door. Let's jump into the show. So, yesterday, I was on Twitter promoting uh, the segment we had with LaVisca and Nate Landman, uh, which we put out yesterday. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode of the Buffs podcast, i do it. It's pretty cool. They're great guys. Uh, It should be a decent listen. But when I said uh, that I had talked to those guys and that Buffs fans should tune in to hear from them, I said something like uh, I talked to Heisman contender LaVisca Chenault, and that rubbed somebody on Twitter the wrong way. He said that you really can't be calling a receiver a Heisman contender, especially on a team like Colorado that's projected. Like, I mean, I think the Vegas win total is set at four right now. And to win a Heisman, you, you're going to need more wins, and you probably can't be a receiver. And I thought that was an Interesting point, not like a surprising point. Like, it's something that people say, and it's very valid because it is so rare for a receiver to win the Heisman. So I uh, I wanted to look back and see what it actually takes for a receiver to get, get some recognition from the Heisman voting committee. A um, little context. So last year, most of you probably remember, but LaVisca was in that Heisman conversation halfway through the season. Through five games, uh, USA Today had him in the top five. Um, Sports Illustrated had him in the top five. Uh, and a couple other places had him up very high too. And so he he was actually putting up the numbers that he needed for people to give him a look in the Heisman race. Um it's also worth noting that at that point in the season, Colorado was 5-0 and exceeding most analysts' expectations for the season, which definitely 100% helped his case. So now I really want to go back, and I looked up a bunch of the stats from guys who won the Heisman, guys who were close to winning the Heisman, and I want to show share those with you guys right now. So... In the, whatever, it's been 70 years now, 75 years that the Heisman Trophy has been awarded to the best player in college football, only three times has it gone to a wide receiver. The first was Johnny Rogers from Nebraska in 1972. The second was Tim Brown of Notre Dame in 1987. And the third was Desmond Howard of Michigan in 1991. Pretty much every year... The trophy goes to quarterbacks and running backs. Um, there have been since since uh, Tim Brown won the Heisman as a receiver in 1987. Every single uh, every single Heisman winner, every single second place Heisman vote getter, and the third place guy, they've all been quarterbacks and running backs, except for the two receivers who won it. Uh, Manti Teo was a runner-up from as a linebacker. And uh, Charles Woodson won it as a cornerback. And Larry Fitzgerald, Amari Cooper, uh, David Palmer, Reggie Israel. There were four receivers who were second or third place in voting. Outside of those, what, seven guys, over the last... 30 years now the top three finishers in the Heisman have been quarterbacks and running backs which is pretty incredible but worth noting when we're talking about how difficult it is for a receiver to win the award but let's jump into the stats of some of those guys just so that we kind of can get a grasp on what exactly they did to win the Heisman and when you go back to the two receivers who actually did win it their numbers don't jump off the page Uh, Tim Brown, 1987, Notre Dame, 39 catches, 846 yards, three touchdowns. That's, there's probably a half dozen receivers. There, There are a couple dozen receivers probably who put those numbers up every single season in college football now. He also had 34 carries for 144 yards and a touchdown. I think what really separated him was he had three punt return touchdowns. He contributed in that aspect of the game as well, which carries some weight. He also, he didn't have any kick return touchdowns that season, but he did have three in his career leading up to that. So he had a reputation as a returner. So actually getting three to the end zone uh, was, was more meaningful. It was kind of expected. He was a consistent returner who broke those things. It wasn't just fluky stuff happening. So those numbers for Tim Brown... You're going to need a lot more than that to win the Heisman as a receiver now. Desmond Howard, four years later at Michigan, 62 catches, 985 yards, 19 touchdowns. So the, the catches and the yards don't, don't jump off the page, but when you look at the 19 touchdowns, that's huge, obviously. He also ran for two touchdowns, only 180 rushing yards, though. He wasn't really a runner as much. Uh, he also returned a kick and a punt for a touchdown. That's 23 touchdowns from one guy in a season, which is a lot of touchdowns, and it made him worthy of the Heisman. 19 19 touchdowns on 62 catches, one in three of his catches were touchdowns. That's an incredible stat, and that's the kind of thing that you need if you're actually going to win the Heisman. But both of these guys, I mean, Desmond Howard, that's 28 years ago he won it. And so, even though they're the guys who actually did get the most votes at the end of the day and received the award, I'm more interested in what a couple more recent finalists have done. Amari Cooper from Alabama in 2014, who placed third in Heisman voting, and Larry Fitzgerald in 2003, he, took, he was second in voting out of Pittsburgh. These guys actually put up numbers that should be good targets for LaVisca and numbers that if LaVisca can match these numbers, there's a good chance he could be a finalist. Uh, If, if he isn't, then Buffs fans will at least have an argument saying he was robbed. He should be top three and consistently the big names like ESPN and Sports Illustrated and all them will say Chanel is a top five player this year, which for a receiver is huge is really huge, and I don't know that the goal for Lavisca should be the Heisman. Just because that is, I mean, there hasn't been a receiver who's done it in 28 years. It's just not a thing that happens. Being in that Heisman conversation, getting the national recognition where every outlet says he's top 10, most say he's top five. That's that's really where he should be living. And if something crazy happens, you know he he pulls like a five six touchdown game. He has a three hundred yard receiving game that kind of skews the stats up high. Then maybe maybe he does break through and and get the first Heisman for a receiver in twenty eight years. It's not likely though because that just does not happen. Uh, so let's let's jump into these stats though. Amari Cooper, one hundred twenty four catches, one thousand seven hundred twenty seven yards, sixteen touchdowns. That's in 14 games on the number one ranked team in the country. Even though Bama did lose uh, in the Sugar Bowl that year, still incredible, incredible numbers on a great team. And he took third. He only had 23 rushing yards, by the way. He he was a pure wide receiver at Alabama. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald, 2003, he had 92 catches. 100, or 1,672 receiving yards, and 22 touchdowns. So when you look back through all these guys who've won the Heisman, been in the conversation, it's the touchdown number that really jumps out at you. 22 touchdowns for Larry Fitzgerald, 16 touchdowns for Amari Cooper, Desmond Howard, 23 total touchdowns in a couple different phases in the game. But it's it's interesting that that is what the Heisman voters have been looking at recently, or at least when they're picking who to nominate At the very least there, the touchdowns, the scoring are, those are the numbers that really jump off the page. Obviously 1700 receiving yards, 1600 receiving yards, massive, massive totals. But you see guys up there sometimes. I mean, there have been, there, there's been a 2000 yard receiving season and he didn't get to be a a finalist for the Heisman. It's the touchdowns that really count, and that's somewhere where LaVisca kind of has an advantage because they use him in that wildcat formation so much and let him run the ball in short yardage situations. So we have those stats. I want to turn those into rate stats, per-game stats, just so that you can compare those. I don't know. 1,700 yards, you know that's a lot, but it's kind of tough to feel out what that really means on a per-game basis. So, Amari Cooper, a little under nine catches per game, a little under 125 yards per game, 16 touchdowns in 14 games, a little over a touchdown a game. I think LaVisca could hit nine catches, 125 yards, 16 touchdowns, and that would would put him ahead of Amari Cooper. Um, Larry Fitzgerald, seven catches per game, 128 yards per game, 22 touchdowns in 13 games. That's 1.7 touchdowns a game. Basically, like, two touchdowns one game, two touchdowns the next, one touchdown the game after. That's what it has to look like, 2-2-1, two, 2-2-1. Two, one, two, two, one. Um, the interesting thing with Larry Fitzgerald, though, is that Pittsburgh lost in the Continental Tire Bowl that year. That was an 8-5 and five team, and he was second in Heisman voting. Again, this is like 15, 16 years ago, so who knows how much that really matters today. But there, there is a path for an 8-win team to get somebody in the Heisman conversation if he puts up 22 touchdowns in 13 games like Larry Fitzgerald did. Um, so to put him ahead of those two, LaVisca needs nine catches per game. That put him ahead. Of both guys, 140 yards per game puts him a dozen yards ahead of either of them. 1.7 touchdowns a game matches fits that two touchdowns, two touchdowns, one touchdown, two touchdowns, two touchdowns throughout the season. And that's something I think that he can manage. The X factor is that LaVisca isn't just a wide receiver. He helps his team in so many different ways. He can run the ball. He can line up at H back. He's a blocker. I, I'm not going back to watch the tape on Amari Cooper, but I'm guessing he was never lined up at tight end and asked to swing behind the line of scrimmage and light up the defensive end on the other side. Just charge into him. That's something that LaVisca brings that other receivers just don't have. And, you know, the big reason that we really don't see receivers win the Heisman is that they just don't touch the ball enough. It's hard to be the most valuable player in the entire country when you aren't touching the ball every single play like a quarterback or every other play like an elite running back. You just don't have as many opportunities to impact the game. But LaVisca does because of the way he they use him, not just when he's running the ball, but also when he's back there blocking. When they keep him in in pass protection, which is is always weird to me when they have four guys in a route and LaVisca is the one skill position player they have back protecting the quarterback, but he does bring more to the table and it's tough to guess how much that will impact voters view of him. Um, So let's get into the stats. We said nine catches puts him ahead through nine games. Like every single game he played, remember this is including USC, when he got hurt halfway through, and uh, New Hampshire, which was a blowout. And so he didn't play that much late. He averaged nine and a half. He was a half game or a half catch ahead of what we say he needs to be in the conversation. He only averaged 112 yards per game. Again, 72 yards against USC when he was hurt, 67 yards against New Hampshire. So that could come up. We said 140 puts him a dozen ahead you probably need to be that far ahead because of how the game has changed. It's just becoming more and more pass heavy. He's going up against, I mean, Tua Tagovailoa, uh, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. To to beat some of these great quarterbacks that will be playing college football this year, he's going to need some incredible stats. Um, he also only had... Uh, what two two thirds of a touchdown every game, and we say he needs a full touchdown more than that. If if you throw in the rushing touchdowns though, that puts him up to one point two two touchdowns per game, which isn't that one point seven number we're talking about. He's a half touchdown behind now instead of a full touchdown, but it's it's closer. It's closer. Another thing that I really think is working in Laviska's favor this year is the schedule because we talk so much about it being a very difficult schedule. There are no easy wins on the entire slate of games. They open up against Colorado state, which I mean, they, they could just run away with that one. I think it's more likely just because it's a rivalry game. It's the last time they're playing in Denver. It's Mel Tucker's first game coaching this team. I think that that's probably going to be a little bit closer than bus fans would like But then after that, they play Nebraska, they play Air Force, who should give the Buffs a good run at the very least, and then they get into conference play in a very competitive conference. That means that every game, you can expect LaVisca to be out there playing in the fourth quarter, which is huge. When we run back and look at uh, Amari Cooper's stats, though, from that Alabama uh, season when they were first in the country, they had 50-point blowout wins I'm guessing he wasn't on the field the whole time and still put up those numbers. Just makes it a little bit tougher for Lovisca because maybe the voters just look at the numbers. Maybe it's giving them too much credit to say that they looked back and realized that Amari Cooper deserves a couple points because he played well enough to get the team off of the field in the fourth quarter. He won them the game, and so he didn't even need to be on the field. And he deserves credit for that. He shouldn't just be looked at for his a little under nine catches, a little under 125 yards, because those might have come, instead of in the full 60 minutes, those might be his stats per 50 minutes. Laviska had a little bit of that because of the injury with USC, because of the blowout with New Hampshire, and those should go away. So his stats should inflate a little bit from that. But here's where things get really interesting for LaVisca. If you look at what he did before the injury, and this, this includes that New Hampshire game where he was pulled off like most of the starters late. Here are his averages. 10.2 catches. That's, that's a full half catch above the 9.5 we wanted. 141.6 receiving yards. That's right at that 140 mark that we said he needed. He has six uh, touchdowns receiving, four touchdowns running. That's two per game, which is ahead of the 1.7 that Larry Fitzgerald had. I mean, that that puts him in the conversation. That's why he was in the conversation, because the national media recognized what he was doing. The Buffs were also 5-0 at that point, which gives him points. He's not putting up hollow stats on a bad team. He's helping them win games. That's an incredible pace. And, you know, you know he had a full off season. Now he's coming back as a junior instead of a sophomore. He might be ready to take another step forward and carry those stats all the way through Pac-12 play. And to be honest, the Buffs need him to. If, if he can't do that, then the Buffs, I mean, they, they would have absolutely zero shot at the Pac-12 title. But even bowl eligibility would be a, a real struggle. Unless LaVisca does come back and take a step forward and a bunch of other guys too, because that's just where this program is right now. They need guys to take a step forward because they were five win team last year. And now they're facing a tougher schedule this year to get to that six win benchmark. They need to improve. And LaVisca is one of those guys, just like everybody else who needs to do that. Uh, but before we leave this topic, I just want to run through a couple of the receiving records, just because I was running through these stats and I thought it was interesting. Just, just so the, now you can have in your head what it would look like for LaVisca to be one of the best college receivers of all time, at least according to these metrics. Okay, so the record for receptions in a season, 158. And assuming that the Buffs play 13 games this year, because if LaVisca plays this well, they'll probably make a bowl game. They probably still won't make the Pac-12 title game. That would give them 13. He would need a little over 12 receptions per game to break the all-time single-season receptions in a season record. Uh, the record for yards, 2,060. That's 158 yards per game, again, assuming 13 games. That's probably not going to happen, but you, we'll throw it out there. Record for touchdowns, 27 touchdowns. That's two, 2.07 a little over two touchdowns per game for an entire season, assuming the 13 games. Those are tough. I mean, the way they've used LaVisca in the past, the way the Buffs have used him, maybe 12 receptions isn't out of the question. He, he averaged over 10 per game last year in those first five games. There could be a step forward. The yards, he'd need some massive games to get there. So I, the general conclusions from this whole thing... The way I see it, the answer to the question is uh, the question of how does LaVisca Chenault get himself into Heisman contention. He puts up the exact same numbers that he put up in the first five games of last season. I don't think that's out of the question, especially when you remember that against New Hampshire, he only had five catches for 67 yards. He can do better than that because the schedule gives him more opportunities to stay on the field for the entire game. There are a couple other things you need. like The, the team needs bowl eligibility at the very least. They likely need to win eight games just to match what Larry Fitzgerald did. They uh, LaVisca needs to stay healthy. LaVisca can't get hurt and miss any time this season. The tough part about that is that to put up these numbers... He'll need an incredible usage rate. The buffs will need to be making him the first option every other play and finding ways for him to contribute when he, he isn't the first option. That will wear a guy down. And after, after seeing him, and I know I've said this a couple times, after seeing him in person, it's tough to believe that that's a guy who could get hurt just because he is so big. So much bigger than anybody else I saw yesterday or I saw Wednesday. I talked about this yesterday. So I hope you guys thought that this was kind of an interesting experiment, but the answer is if he can put up 10.2 catches, 142 yards, two touchdowns per game, like he did in the first five games of last season, he'll be right in that conversation. It's time to take a second and acknowledge Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of BSN Denver. Breckenridge is the original Colorado beer established in 1990 in Breckenridge, Colorado. You've probably heard of their delicious Vanilla Porter, their Oatmeal Stout, and most people's personal favorite, the world-famous Avalanche, which is their classic American Amber Ale. But they just released a new beer called Strawberry Sky that you guys are going to love. For you beer enthusiasts out there, they're calling this a light-hearted Kolsch Ale, but for those of you who have no idea what that means, this is that light, delicious summer beer that you've been looking for. So look for Strawberry Sky at your local liquor store or any other Breckenridge beer. And make sure you also look out for the Breckenridge event calendar on bsndenver.com. We just launched it this week. You'll be able to see all of the events we have planned, and we'll be drinking Breck beers at all of them. So RSVP and have a good time. Tagging on to that just a little bit, the BSN Breck Bar Crawl is tonight, Friday night, 7.30. RSVP, uh, if you can, it's the events on Eventbrite. You can get there through the BSN website. We've been pushing it out on Twitter. consistently over the last week or so we'll have beer for you guys for some of the drinking games we plan on playing we'll be giving away tickets we'll be giving away uh gift cards with some of our partners probably some t-shirts too and the best part is it's all free so come hang out the entire bsn crew will be there want to talk buffs want to talk broncos want to talk nuggets and rockies We'll have people who are at every single game out there, every single practice, who just want to talk sports with you. So take advantage of that. I'll be right back.
3: What's up, guys? Ryan Koenigsberg here, and I gotta tell you about the Blake Street Tavern. It's my favorite sports bar in town, as evidenced by the fact that we had our fantasy draft there. It's where I watched Super Bowl 48. It's where I watched CU win a Pac-12 basketball championship back in the day. Uh, The Buffalo Chicken Wrap, you name it, they've got it. And the location is perfect. Just two blocks north of Coors Field, and they have parking. So go check out the Blake Street Tavern.
2: All right. I know we've been pretty heavy on the LaVisca Chenault talk for the first week or so, mostly because he kind of is this team. And I felt like this first segment going through, figuring out what his actual chances at a Heisman were, would be a good way to cap that off and start moving on to some deeper stuff as we move forward so now i want to start getting into some of the questions uh first one from bring the buff i'm wondering about walk-ons and if they receive the same benefits as scholarship players obviously not tuition books etc in terms of training support injury recovery nutrition and things like that that's an interesting question because how walk-ons are treated varies significantly from team to team And having not been up around the buffs and been able to get a feel for kind of the culture there, what Mel Tucker's all about, I don't know exactly how they are treated there. In theory, they're they're treated about the same, or at least they should be. They're all just guys, just some have scholarships and some don't. That wasn't always true. Uh, A few years ago, the NCAA changed a rule that said that... So, let's start with this. The scholarship players, when they take food or snacks or that kind of stuff from the team, they have to have that much money deducted from their scholarship. So, when walk-on players did it without the scholarship they had to have the same amount of money or they had to pay the same amount of money that the scholarship players had deducted. Scratched that rule, said that walk-ons can eat for free because they aren't getting anything from the team anyway. So there were some rules like that. I don't know that there are anymore. I'm pretty sure there aren't. So it's all just pretty much culture-based. So it's kind of on the top players to decide how they treat everybody else it's easy in a locker room for people to get divided for the star players to have some ego be a little arrogant and treat the walk-ons or even just the backups on scholarships differently and you know they're always the stories about freshmen being hazed that kind of stuff and so there can be those kinds of things um, against walk-ons as well just because the walk-on typically isn't in the starting lineup, isn't getting too much playing time. Because if he was, they he'd probably either transfer to somewhere that would give him a scholarship or the coaching staff would give him a scholarship so that he didn't leave. So that's kind of tough to tell from the outside exactly how things are treated. There's other stuff like, I'm sure they still have the same access to the training room, but if LaVisca Chenault wants to use the training room like the trainer's probably going to treat lavisca before he treats some walk-on just because he is who he is and those kinds of things happen everywhere you know lavisca goes to the training guy says i I need another buffs hoodie I, i doubt the people in the training room are going to have any issue uh or in the equipment room are going to have any issue giving lavisca another hoodie but when a walk-on who doesn't see the field, just some 18-year-old kid says, hey, can I have another hoodie? Maybe, maybe not, you know? And so it's just that kind of stuff where the top guys are going to get preferential treatment from the coaches, from the trainers, from the equipment guys, from the university. Uh, Sometimes, I'm pretty sure sometimes, the walk-ons don't get to have preferential, like, treatment in terms of picking their classes. So when LaVisca needs to pick his classes for a semester, he can do that before most kids in the school can just because his schedule is pretty particular. I don't think that walk-ons generally get that same right. There are a couple little things like that, but basically it depends on the culture. If If being treated better by the trainers and the equipment guys gets to you know, Steven Montez's head to Nate Landman's head, which would surprise me. Then maybe they create the culture that says no walk-ons are treated like second tier citizens. So there's that. There's also the fact that they, since walk-ons rarely see the field, they can kind of be used as tackling dummies and practice, which isn't necessarily because they're walk-ons. It's just because, they aren't going to see the field, so they are more expendable because you don't want LaVisca taking hits. You don't want KD taking hits. You don't want like the fourth or, fourth or fifth receiver taking hits just in case he needs to come in and play. And the best option is to say, hey, you, 18-year-old kid who we haven't invested anything in and we don't need anything from you in the near future, you go catch some passes. If you get lit up, that's probably fine. So I don't know that systemically the walk-ons are treated differently than players with scholarships, but I can tell you that more often than not, they must feel like it just because they aren't getting preferential treatment from trainers and that kind of stuff. And they're taking a beating in practice. They're kind of the guys that get thrown around when the, coaching staff needs somebody to throw around so that's kind of my take on what it's like to be a walk-on again I haven't been up in Boulder talking with everybody so I'm not really sure what that locker room culture is like but it's just like anywhere else I mean you look at the Broncos Von Miller has three lockers one's just I think Ryan was telling me this but one's just filled with all the free stuff that people send him you know And he has two lockers for all of his own things that, you know, his shoes, his pads, all that kind of stuff. Undrafted rookies, they aren't getting that kind of stuff. And it's the same thing. Vaughn wants his ankle taped. He's getting his ankle taped by the best trainer, whoever he chooses, and he is going to skip the line to get that done. And it's the same thing that happens in college football where walk-ons really do have a tough go of it because they don't get preferential treatment. And I doubt they get preferential treatment from professors either. I mean, LaVisca goes and tells one of his professors, hey, I'm gonna be gone. You mind if I take the exam after I get back from this Friday night football game at USC or whoever it is? Professor probably says, oh yeah, go ahead, take it Monday. You're Laviska Chennault. If, you know, some walk-on does the same thing, professor probably says, well, my policy is we if you can't take an exam at the time the correct time you have to take it before you go so you're in here thursday cram for that while you're doing all your football stuff it's the lack of preferential treatment that really does make a big difference uh at least that's my understanding of what it's like to be a walk-on this one comes in from sunny rain uh hey henry just wanted to touch on pac-12 commissioner larry scott acting like he's so bent about sb206 And players being paid for their NIL. Uh, You said that he acted like it was a waste of his time to discuss the matter, and also that he would like to see a situation where payment is tied to academics. When you hear that, you have to question if the guy is going to float off into space with that inflated ego. Neither he nor the NCAA have any grounds for shutting this down. The NCAA is a joke with zero actual authority. It's time to go the way of the dodo bird anyhow. Yeah, I don't know. It's... I could tell you that from an outside perspective, before my job was like full time, cover college sports, talk to football players all day, talk to football coaches all day, go listen to the Pac 12 commissioner speak, take all of the information they give you in. I mean, from the outside, it kind of did seem absurd that players couldn't get paid because they are working. And you can't tell me LaVisca Chenault is only worth a scholarship because there are only so many kids, I mean whatever, 18 to 22 year olds who can do the things that he did. Nobody has that set of talents and so his talent should be worth more than 30 grand or whatever. He gets a year for scholarships at CU. That's the easy way to look at it. He's clearly being pay- paid less than market value which is generally wrong, especially in I, I, what really makes me upset about it. And maybe it's because I'm still just 22, but it, if, if he was a 45 year old man, there's no way that the NCAA could get away with saying, no, we say you're worth this much. A lot of it comes down to him just being a kid still. And people saying, well, yeah, I mean, most 20 year olds aren't making this much money anyway. It's like, yeah, but most 20 year olds don't have this, insane level of talent. But when you see one, when you see I mean musicians is an easy jump to make. Like somebody has a number one single, nobody says, oh you're a kid, you got plenty to come. You uh give all this stuff back to the record. That's not how it works. If you're talented, you should get the wages and salary that you deserve based on those talents. And right now that isn't what happens in the NCAA. And from the outside, it really does seem wrong. I am interested in talking more with people. I What I really want to do, and I haven't had time yet just because we've been so busy with launch, but at some point I'm going to request a budget from the athletics department at CU just to look through because I don't know where their money goes or where it comes from. And since it's a public university, all that information is uh, available to the public. And i'd love to go through and say hey here's the profit they're running here's what everybody else is making here's what they're giving to student athletes and it's it's always an interesting discussion because odds are they're running a pretty tight budget would it be better if they had spent less money on training equipment and given that money to players who knows who's to say would it be better if since laviska schnault is bringing in so much money Should they be giving him a salary and cutting a couple of scholarships from sports that don't make as much money like the tennis team or the golf team? I don't know because those kids and those sports put in the same amount of work, but LaVisca Chanel, his talents are just more valuable. And when you look at it from the other kid's side, you say, yeah, I mean, they, they do so much for, you know, the university as well. It just isn't resulting in revenue. The tough part of this whole conversation is that the money you give to players has to come from somewhere. It isn't just all of a sudden there's the NCAA saying, yep, we'll just start handing this out and now they have it. It, it has to come from somewhere. And we know that a lot of these universities have big budgets and there's probably somewhere they can cut uh you know ncaa brings in so much money you know the tv deals like the the ticket sales all that kind of stuff you, you it's easy to think that it has to be able to come from somewhere there's somewhere where you can make the cut so that some players could be paid i just don't know where that is do you take money away from mel tucker because I and mean, he's making however many million dollars, and the players are making whatever their salary is. So it's an interesting conversation. I'd be interested. I haven't looked into too much where people suggest that money comes from, whether that's saying we don't need to be paying ADs $5 million a year, something like that. But the one thing that really drives me crazy about all of this is that players can't profit off their own likeness that's that's the one that it's not that i don't understand the rule i understand how it protects the ncaa but it it's protecting the ncaa and not the student athletes and if they got rid of that and said yeah lavisca go sign some autographs make a couple bucks if, or, you know, go make an appearance, go, go, uh, go on Henry's podcast. He'll give you a hundred bucks and buy you some food or something like that. You know, the fact that we can't do that is difficult because, you know, for the, for the Broncos, you can, if, if you want to set up an interview and say, Hey, come on my radio show you can say, yeah, I'll give you 200 bucks, come talk for 15 minutes, and you'll be good to go. That's an opportunity that college athletes don't have. And it's really disappointing because of how much they give us. And a lot of the arguments against paying players, because one of the things that would happen In that instance if you said players can make money from outside sources universities can't give it to them then who knows maybe a bookie approaches them and says hey here's uh 10 grand throw this game and you can't have that but that would be breaking a rule it it would be tougher to catch people when that rule is broken Because right now, any income that comes from outside is against the rules. So it's a lot easier to figure it out. And I'm sure LaVisca showing up in $1,300 Dolce & Gabbana shoes raised some red flags. Somebody's wondering, how does a college kid afford that? And I don't know what the answer is. I trust LaVisca, and so I'm not too worried about it. But that kind of stuff when you do see those shoes and that reminds me i brought these up yesterday and said that justin michael had figured out they were the 1300 dolce and gabbana shoes he actually quote tweeted chase howell from 24 7 and actual actually a uh, former bsn buffer who uh, figured that out first and i noticed i was scrolling through twitter last night i was like oh no i screwed that one up so shout out to chase for figuring it out he deserves it but yeah you see you see those shoes it's a red flag the NCAA probably knows to investigate that and figure out where they came from. If, if you say, Oh, he could have gotten those because he just, uh, wrote a book and that book sold a bunch of copies. People were interested in his meteoric ride, whatever. Then you would not have noticed the shoes. You just say, Oh, it was probably from that. It gives that easy answer. And that's a lot of the argument against letting players profit off their own likeness is that it would hurt the integrity uh, integrity of the game. But when you look at the NFL, that doesn't stop them from doing it or the MLB or the NBAA or any other professional league, you can't a, a lot of it, I think again comes from these being young kids that people say, oh, they wouldn't be able to manage the money anyway. It just get him into trouble or, my least favorite argument, the one that just drives me crazy is that we shouldn't pay college athletes because what makes college football so great is that they're all just doing it for the love of the game. (laughs) That's not how it works. Like I can't go to Subway and say, Oh, I like my sandwiches made by people who really enjoy making sandwiches. So you can't pay your employees. That's not how any of this works because the college athletes are providing us a service and they, the service they provide is worth more than the scholarship they're giving us. I think uh, there was a study at the University of Texas, and I may have mentioned this earlier this week, but this was probably 10 years ago, maybe not quite that long, 2011, 2012. And in that study, they found that the average Texas football player was was providing about $750,000 in revenue to the university because of all the T-shirts the football team sells, because of the tickets they sell, the TV deal, uh, the appearances they make on behalf of the university, uh, all of this kind of stuff, they found that they should probably be paid, if it was a fair market, $750,000 on average. And that's that's not just for like the starters or the scholarship guys. That's 130 deep. The top guys should be making more than that. And sure, that's Texas football, not Colorado football, so it's a little bigger, but it is a benchmark. It is something that we can use and say, okay, it's still going to be more than $30,000 in Colorado. The bad news is I don't think it's getting changed, at least not anytime soon. You'd love to see the player likeness rule gone because LaVisca Chenault should be on TV here. It'd be great for everybody, you know? There's a pizza place that wants LaVisca to advertise for him in Boulder. Perfect. Get him out there. Turn him into even more of a star. Let people treat him like a star so that people in Boulder realize he is a star and you fill that stadium. The student section is full because everybody knows LaVisca Chenault is a dude. Like he's somebody who's going to the league and he should be hyped up like that. Same with a bunch of other guys. Mustafa Johnson, the same thing. I don't know, maybe he's the pizza guy and says something like, I'm hungry for quarterbacks or something like that. People would love it. People would eat it up. And instead you have, I mean, I I haven't seen it, but I would guess maybe somebody up there has a contract with Phil Lindsay. Now that he's in the league, it's allowed. Maybe Darian Hagan's out there like talking up something for somebody. Players should be able to profit off themselves. If LaVisca wants to start a YouTube channel and do it for money, he should be able to do that. It's just kind of silly to me that he's not. And a lot of this argument, it seems like it comes down to players aren't treated like adults. They're treated like children. And maybe, maybe I'm off in that read, but that's just kind of what it looks like to me. And it's just always frustrating to, to see that. A- another big issue that uh, obviously is kind of at the core of all of this is that there's no, nobody speaking for the players. There's no union. There's no like college football players association which would talk with the NCAA, negotiate with the NCAA on behalf of the players. It's all just decided by the NCAA and by the conferences And so the results are one-sided there. There's a better system. I I do think eventually we'll get to a better system where it feels like the players are getting closer to what they deserve and it just might take a while before we get there. So, yeah, I think, I think you ended your comment with a, it's time that NCAA goes the way of the dodo bird. That's not going to happen just because there's so much money. And for another organization to say we are in charge of taking over college sports, that infrastructure needs to be incredible. Like out there at Pac-12 Media Day, when they have, you know, 500 people working that event, they're booking that big place in Hollywood. It's all set up perfectly for these press conferences, massive video screens, all this kind of stuff. And that's just one day. You need people to be checking in to make sure players aren't breaking rules. You need all the support staff, all the way down from Larry Scott at the top to the next layer of the bureaucracy, which branches off into five more guys. Then all those five guys branch off into 10 more and 20 more. There's so much startup cost. If you were just to say, I'm making the NCAA from scratch tomorrow, it costs billions of dollars. And that's what it would take to get any school, including Colorado, to jump ship. And to make a competitive secondary uh, college athletics association, you would need a bunch of schools to jump ship. And that's just kind of, I mean, it's its impossible. So that was a bit of a tangent, especially because there wasn't even a question there. But those are some of my thoughts. Um, again, I'm interested in going and talking to Mel Tucker and see what he has to say. That wasn't something I really wanted to bring up in my first conversation with him because it is kind of a contentious issue. Uh, same thing. Uh, same thing with some of the players. I, I want to talk with them again. It's it's dangerous to speak out against the status quo, and especially when you don't think anything's going to change. And so causing problems where they don't need to be co- problems caused. I'm not saying the NCAA, if LaVisca were to say P- players need to be paid. I'm not saying the NCAA comes back and says, well, where are those shoes from? Tell us exactly where the shoes are from. But the fact they have the authority to do that or the, the authority to drug test, like it's just a lot safer not to do anything, especially when doing something probably wouldn't create any results anyway. But I do want to get up there and talk with them, hear their takes, all that kind of stuff. Um, end of the comment though, instead of Scott trying to figure out best to strengthen the conference and prevent regional talent from leaving, he wants to play demigod to a situation that he has no power to stop. It's no wonder the PAC 12 is in such a bad shape. And that's the university president's fault for bringing in a person with zero knowledge of college sports. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, just like the NFL with Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the PAC 12 is supposed to take all the heat he's supposed to protect all of the college presidents, just like Roger Goodell protects all of the NFL owners from that. They can say, no, that was, that was just Larry Scott's idea. He's, he's the figurehead of a bureaucracy, which means that people will not really like him all that much. It is true though, that the PAC 12 is in bad shape. I mean, I, and even that's only really in a football sense. The media deal is bad, The football teams aren't as good as you would like. I mean, actually, where they really need to step up is with the basketball. They should be having two teams in the top 10 constantly. It's Pac-12 basketball. Outside of those two sports, though, they're kind of dominant. I mean, they still won more national championships last year than any other conference. And for me, I know that... as. I love football and basketball, but I also love watching the other sports. I like women's basketball. I like watching soccer. I like golf. And so that is valuable to have all of those other sports performing well. Half the U.S. women's national team that just won the World Cup came from a Pac-12 school. So there is a lot going right. It's just the most noticeable things that are kind of going wrong. Do I think that... Larry Scott is the guy to fix it. I'm not really sure. I haven't been covering the Pac-12 enough. I know that a lot of people don't. I know there were things that he said in his speech that rubbed me the wrong way. But I also think that his job is just to take a bunch of the heat. And honestly, the, the university president's plan for him might be just to take a bunch of heat until 2024, install a new commissioner, let the new commissioner open up his regime by starting a new media deal, getting off on the right foot, and then trending upward from there. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the plan If four more years of just a holding pattern. Let Larry Scott take the hate and then replace him. Now, if you're Larry Scott making, what, five, ten million million a year, I think it's $5 million a year, a little more. You're not going to complain about that. So yeah, it's, it's disappointing. Pac-12 isn't where The fans want it to be. It's not where the schools want it to be, and it's definitely not where the Pac-12 wants it to be. Maybe I'll be more fed up with Larry Scott after covering the Pac-12 longer. But as of right now, he seems like he's doing commissioner things for a league that doesn't have the most public support, and that's what I'll say about that. All right, that was a. (laughs) Those are a couple pretty long answers. Uh. We're going to talk real quick about the Green Solution. The Green Solution has 17 Colorado locations and an express checkout to get you in and out as fast as possible. Get on your phone right now, go to their website, mygreensolution.com, and order your flour, concentrates, edibles, and topicals online. Then head to the closest Green Solution for pickup. Use code BSN20 for 20% off your entire purchase. So yesterday I was talking to Ryan and Brandon, both separately, Brandon Spano, Ryan Konigsberg, and they both said, you know, these podcasts don't have to be an hour. Like we know the Broncos pod is, we know most of the pods are, but you just talk for as long as you feel like you have content. We're approaching an hour already, so we're going to wrap this up pretty quickly. I think there's only one question left, and it comes in from NYTJ Fan. He says, Hammer and Henry, you're off to a fast start. Setting up to start right before the Pac-12 media days was a smart move by BSN. I totally agree. Because if we had started before media day, or if I hadn't gone to media day, we would not have been able to get so much good content out quickly. Luckily, it was an opportunity for us. You know, the, the head guys up at BSN, Brandon, uh, Ryan, all of them are supportive enough of me and our Buffs coverage that they were willing to send me out to Los Angeles. Um, my first ever full-time job, really, with BSN, sending me out to Los Angeles, telling me a for myself, come up with stories. And it all worked out. They trusted me. They cared enough about this beat to spend some money to do it. And now I have something to talk about instead of just all my thoughts, which I know that last second was pretty much just all my thoughts. Okay. A, qu- a couple of quick comments on the pod content. One, watch out for Mark Perry's a freshman that may make an impact. Yes. 100%. I, uh, I paused the recording yesterday so I could make sure I ran through and looked at all of the freshmen so I wouldn't miss anybody. Mark Perry was going to be the last one that I talked about because... He is the one who I think is really, really, really going to break out. Forgot to talk about him because I got distracted and wanted to move on to the next question. But yes, Mark Perry. I think. I mean, I think he's your opening day starter. I think that uh, he's going to be a force on the back end early. I think that in a couple years we're going to be talking about him as one of the best football players in the Pac-12. The loss of Hassan Hippolyte is really disappointing. I liked him. I thought that he could be a big name, but bringing in Mark Perry makes that a lot easier to lose. I think somewhere had him as a four-star. A couple spots had him as a three-star. Great athlete. Uh, solid size early on. He's fast. I think I think that he's going to be an important part of this defense. Part of the reason why is uh, the Buffs also got the transfer... Uh, I don't know how to say his name yet. Mikhail Onu would be my guess, but I think that might be actually the first time I've said it out loud, so I'm not really sure exactly how to say it. But he's a transferred safety from SMU, and he's more of an in-the-box safety. He doesn't cover as well as you'd like a safety to, especially with the problems the secondary is facing. And that's why I think Mark Perry is going to get a lot of time He's going to have a lot of opportunities. And I wouldn't be surprised if... I mean, the coaching staff would never admit this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of has the leg up. It's kind of his job to lose as we get into camp. I really do. I do like his game. I think that he is going to be an important part of this defense this year and going forward. Um, Okay, let's move on from Mark Perry. Uh, He also ended up having a great spring track season with some very strong numbers. I have not seen those numbers. I will go back and look, check him out in the minimal free time you may have 100% will. Also, I love this part because, uh, like I said a few times, there are guys that I miss. Mark Perry is one that I've been excited about for a while, but if, if you think I'm missing something, if when I talk about like the cornerbacks, for example, you say, oh wait, you're, you kind of skipped over this guy who's going to be a big contributor. Let me know. I think I have most of this buff stuff, at least buffs football. Locked down. I have a good sense of who everybody is. That said, I've been following the bus for two months, and a lot of you guys have probably been following it for years and years and years. So if you feel like I'm missing something, definitely just let me know. I would love to check out anybody you tell me to check out or whatever else you say that I should be thinking about. Uh, Number two, I would love to see a more in-depth examination of the offensive line. Coach Cap seems like he may be one of the key additions. Agreed and addition by subtraction of the old old O-line coach. Don't know much about him because I've researched the newcomers more than the guys who've left, but I wouldn't be surprised based on kind of the poor play of the offensive line recently to hear that Buffs fans aren't a huge fan of the old old O-line coach. Um, Additionally, there seems to be more talent than just Will Sherman on the line this year. I would love to hear more after you study and research a bit more in this space. Yeah, so let's start with Will Sherman. He, uh... I mean, I think it was Phil Steele had him as the fourth team preseason all-pack 12, which is exciting, but that puts him in, what, four times five? That means he's somewhere between, like, the 16th and the 20th best offensive lineman in the conference. It's good. It's not great. I mean, he's, he's a top third left tackle. Good, but that's not somebody who's going to be able to carry your line there, there is reason to be more optimistic about the offensive line this season. They lost a couple starters, but they lost they, they the losses weren't as bad as the year before, and so that's always a good sign. So you, you hope that that means that they won't be quite as raw, more used to playing with each other this year. So that's one reason the losses aren't as bad as they were the year before. The other reason I really like uh, Arlington Hambright. He's going to be a senior, probably starting at right tackle would be my guess, but I'm not really sure at this point. Uh, he's a transfer from Oklahoma State. He was the uh, number 76 JUCO prospect, started five games at left tackle last year. So, yeah, I mean, he's a guy who can play football. And that's what they need is just guys who can really step in and play some football. He's ready. And if you look across the rest of the offensive line, I mean, maybe Kerry Kutch gets to start. That would be a good sign. Uh, He's a junior. Tim Lynott's a senior. Colby Purcell's a sophomore. It's a more experienced group than last year, which I think is really important for an offensive line just because so much of playing offensive line is about chemistry and knowing each other and just not making bad decisions. There are so many guys who are really big and really strong that the guys who really break through are guys who know what they're doing and know how to play together. And that's why I think that offensive line coaches have more impact on their group than most other position coaches, because so much of it is about learning and doing what you're supposed to be doing. And not as much when you look at like a running back where it's, Somehow, you need to get from five yards behind the line of scrimmage to five yards in front of the line of scrimmage. Offensive line is going to try to open a hole right here. Maybe it's going to be right here, but you just have to read it and figure out how to get there. It's more about that individual talent, the vision, and the ability to like run guys over, get around guys, somehow getting from here to there and that creativity. Whereas, offensive line is a lot more structured and knowing your responsibilities. And I think that that's why an upgrade at offensive line coach probably has more impact than upgrading most other position coaches. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, though, you just kind of have to see what they can do on the field because it could be that they just flop again, even though they do have a year more experience. They do have a couple more guys, you know, I mean... William Sherman, honorable mention, All pack 12 as a freshman last year. It's a good start. He needs to take a step forward. And that's kind of—I mean, I know our key just keeps saying this over and over. There are just so many guys on this roster that you need to step up this season. So that's kind of my early take on this offensive line. Watching the film last year, actually, I watched that Colorado State game, and uh, they blew my mind. I was like, why is everybody saying so many bad things about this offensive line? They're throwing everybody around. They're opening holes. They're helping set up all of these screens. They pull really well. They move really well. And then we got to the Nebraska game the next week, and they just got tossed. And that's kind of how it was for most of the season. So it'll be interesting to see how much they improve this year. I do think they'll improve, so we'll see. Uh, number three, your call out of Jalen Sami. Sammy, I think it's Sami. As a potential high-impact redshirt freshman was spot on. Jalen's story in late recruitment would be a great topic to dig into if you can. Interesting. If he fulfills the promise that seems to have come out of spring practice, he could be the story of the season. I don't know much about his story. I will definitely look into that. I mean, to be honest, hopefully nobody's written anything about it, and now I can go talk to him and figure out what exactly it is and then write that story. But, yeah, I agree. He's talented enough to be not just a uh, replacement level player, somebody you don't worry about, but a guy who helps, a guy who's making plays. And that's kind of, I don't think I've said this on the podcast before, but that's kind of my theory about defense, particularly in college football, is that it's really hard to stop teams from getting 10 yards in three plays. To build the kind of defense that just kind of suffocating like that, that holds you to two, three yard gains on three plays in a row, that's extremely difficult. And so I, I like to see teams build around playmakers, guys who can sack the quarterback, pick off a pass. You know, Von Miller, who has this crazy knack for stripping the ball. That's so valuable because that's a way to change games. Because, you know, if you get a sack, then all of a sudden it's second 18. Holding guys to nine yards or less on two plays, that's a lot easier. And playing that, okay, well, you got this first down got like a second first down but this third time we're going to actually hold you to nine yards that's a very old school way to look at football and on defense i'm not as worried about holes as i am getting as many playmakers as you can and so jalen sammy is an opportunity to be one of those guys who is a playmaker because right now mustafa johnson clearly is one nate landman is one delrick abrams is i think davion taylor is I really liked a lot of the things he did. I didn't love everything about him. He he just, he's. I guess what happened is he looked like more of a tweener than he did a, a real star. You know, he looked like somebody who couldn't quite play either position, but he could almost play both well. And there were plays where he looked really good. There were plays where you're like, oh, yeah, you kind of got pushed around or you work quite fast and there's that kind of stuff. But I do think that he's another guy who can take a step and as a senior be one of those impact players. So yeah, you have Mustafa, you have Nate, you have Davion. I like Delic Abrams. And then if you can throw Jalen Sami in there, maybe Terrence Lang is a guy who steps up. Uh, The way Nate Landman was talking about Carson Wells uh, on the podcast yesterday, that's a great sign right there. And you just need to get these guys to be stars instead of guys who can do their job and try to slow a defense down. That's my theory on defense at least. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going with it. Now the question, other than head coach, which coaching position do you think represents the biggest upgrade in coaching and recruiting over the predecessor from the McIntyre staff? That's a good one. I think I think uh, bringing in Chris Kaplovich is a huge upgrade. I, I th- I, just because the offensive line was the weakest part of this team last year, and so change is really valuable. And early reports are that he's already kind of making an impact. Guys are saying, you know, he's he's detail-oriented, which is what you want in an offensive line coach. It's all about just refining those little techniques. Same thing on the defensive side of the ball in the trenches. Like When when you watch Vaughn Miller talk about pass rushing or just watch him practice and the, the, the details, the work that he puts in, putting his hands in the exact right spot to get as much leverage as possible. That's, it's all the exact same on the offensive side of the ball. And an experienced offensive line coach, a guy who's been a part of winning football teams, I, th- I think that that's a good choice to be the best newcomer. There's also been a lot of hate that I've seen based on Mel Tucker bringing in a couple of quality control coaches to be his coordinators. Maybe I'm on the... I don't know the wrong side of this argument, but I I kind of like what both Jay Johnson and Tyson Summers are doing coming from the sec because that's kind of the big sell for Mel Tucker is that he's going to run CU like an sec program. You don't get to do that. If you just bring in one guy from the sec, that's not how it works. Like sure. He's seen it before, but He's teaching everybody, he's trying to show everybody by the way he handles his business, how he wants everything to run. And by bringing in a couple more guys who will step into their new roles, doing things the way that Mel Tucker wants them done, that is extremely beneficial. I'm sure he'll have to have the conversations with those guys and say, "No, actually in this situation I want to do this. I want you to teach this this way. I want our focus to actually be this." But it won't be nearly as much as it is if he were to work with people who've already been here. I in particular, I really like Tyson Summers. He just seems to me, he, so he's the defensive coordinator, he's also going to be coaching safeties. I he I know, I remember him from when he was at Colorado State. And the way that he transform that defense as defensive coordinator into a much better defense than it was when he got there. Uh, he's only 38. He seems like a guy who's really on the up and up. He, I, I, he was the head coach at Georgia Southern after he kind of cleaned up that Colorado State Rams defense. Everything he just seems like about a good him coaching him the prospect, that- a guy that you want to be in your system. And, the fact that he already kind of knows what Mel Tucker wants to do from being with him at Georgia is just so beneficial. He was part of that run for UCF. He's been a head coach. He's had success transforming a defense. He's coming in and coaching the safeties, which is a group that needs to be coached. Like even if Mark Perry is everything that I think Mark Perry can be having a young guy, or giving a young guy a coach like Tyson Summers is extremely beneficial because he's coming from the SEC. He has experience working at very high levels of football, and sure, maybe, maybe defensive coordinator is about the right level of position for him because of like you know his experience, his knowledge, that kind of stuff. He isn't ready to be a head coach in the Pac-12. He's ready to be a defensive coordinator in the Pac-12, but as a safeties coach. He he's blowing the standards for a safeties coach in the Pac-12 out of the water. And with the young group, they need the help back there. I I think that there's potential for all those safeties to be taking a big step forward this year. And who knows? Maybe maybe he's too distracted uh, coaching the entire defense, thinking about his coordinator responsibilities to really give the time to the young safeties that they need because they are pretty raw. I and mean, it's going to be Mark Perry... I, I mean, Aaron Maddox. I I, I don't know Trey Udefia. It's just th- there are question marks back there, and he's a guy who can help fix those question marks. So that's kind of the what I like to see. Obviously, like I think keeping Cheverini is huge. That wide receivers group has been so good for so long. Uh, he's done a great job recruiting. He isn't a newcomer though, so he doesn't answer the question. But promoting him to assistant coach, I think, is a great decision. And it's one that's really going to pay off. That's cheating to answer the question that way. So I'm going to go with Summers. But that's that's what I see. All right. That's uh it for today. Hopefully, I'll see some of you guys tonight for the BSN Breck Brew Bar Crawl. Come drink some beers. Come talk some buffs. Come argue with me if you think that I'm being dumb about something on here. Yeah, it will be a blast. And if I don't see it tonight, then I'll be talking to you guys again on Monday. Again, leave some questions. We had three today. They were good questions that I really enjoyed talking about. Hopefully you guys can come up with a couple more for Monday and we'll talk through all of those. And you know what next week is? That's the first week of fall camp. Football season is just around the corner. I'm so excited to be here to watch it all unfold with you guys. That's all I've got for you today. Bye guys. I
1: think they like my Colorado sway. Cause when I'm in they play, I don't really, I don't really know just how to act. And when I mean they go, you know I'm acting bad. Holland did a books with my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. I think they like, I think they like my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. Pushing 180 speeding past competition. and see you later, baby, baby. Colorado on me with soldiers like the Navy yeah. And boaters where we stationed, patiently awaiting Boy. When I hit the field, it's so hard to behave yeah. I'm Colorado swagging as the crowd do the wave Looking to my I can tell that you're afraid uh-huh. Cause you know we finna get hit ya, 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 hit ya, ya, ya. Hey. Hey. You on your own now Why you watching the official yeah. You just better hope you make it to the next whistle God. And we playin' with ya you. you can get it anytime We yeah. start at the scrimmage We gon' win it at the line. Yeah. My Colorado swag in the middle of the ring We say we got them. If we not then we'll get them. When we see them, then I we at them. I think they on. like my Colorado swing. Cause when I'm in it, play. I don't really, I don't really know just how to act. And when I'm in it, go. You know I'm acting bad. Holly get a bus with my Colorado swing. My Colorado swing. My Colorado swing. I think they like, I think they like my Colorado swing. My Colorado swing. My I swear I think they like my Colorado. I think they like my Colorado when I'm in it play I do really, I don't really know just how to act. And when I'm in it go you know I'm acting bad. Holly get a bus with my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway, my Colorado sway. I think they like, I think they like my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway, my
3: Colorado sway. Man, I swear I think they like my Colorado sway.